Welcome to The Next Step, the podcast for students, hosted by Stint. Welcome to the next episode of the Stint Podcast. Our guest today is Annabelle Croft, a former British number one tennis player. Annabelle achieved great success early on in her career and made the tough decision to retire from playing aged 21. Following her retirement, Annabelle reinvented herself as an actress, presenter, and pundit, and runs a successful tennis academy as well. Annabelle's experience as a professional tennis player in the 80s is fascinating. But what I think is really valuable to us all is hearing her talk about how and why she made the decision to step away, and the choices she made once she did it. I think it's important to be the driver, not the passenger in your own life, and Annabelle found herself having to make big choices about the next step at 21 not dissimilar to many of you. Talking to Annabelle about how she has approached her life and her career was really cool. And I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Hey, Annabelle, thank you for joining the Stid Podcast. How are you doing today? I am doing really well, thank you. And thank you so much for inviting me because it's a real honour to come and speak to you as well. Cool. Thank you so much. Um, so... One of the themes of this podcast is really trying to provide mentorship to students. And I think one of the key things that I have been very keen to identify throughout all these conversations I've been having is this idea that success at 21 years old is not necessarily predetermined. And a lot of our guests have been 21 years old and had no idea what they wanted to do with their life. Now, your story is obviously a little bit different to that. And, you know, you retired at 21, if if that's correct. (laughs) At 18, you won Junior Wimbledon and the Australian Open. And so you already achieved incredible success at 21 years old. And you look like you were very much, you know, on track to follow an amazing tennis career. And then obviously things changed. So before we go into that, I want to focus on your childhood and understand how your childhood was set up. What, did you always know you wanted to be a pro tennis player? No, I, um, I was a child that was very active. Apparently, I used to exhaust all my friends when they'd come over to play. Um, I had so much energy and I was very much doing um, a lot of outside activities. Most of my youth was spent outdoors. I was riding mopeds and motorbikes with the local neighbours and spending all my time in the fields. I did ballet. I did riding and I just wanted to be outdoors. And you have to remember that in my era, none of us grew up with any of these mobile phones or computers. So, you know, you were active by just entertaining yourself outside in the garden or we had fields at the back of our house. So I was out there the whole time. And I discovered tennis at the age of nine on a family holiday. And once I picked up that racket and I joined this little group session in a hotel, And I just loved it. I fell in love with it from the moment I first picked up a racket. And I then played in this little tournament at the hotel. And I lost very easily. And my brother was teasing me because I lost. And my mum thought that I'd never want to pick up a racket again. But I came back to England and all I wanted to do was play tennis. So she was like going out around the local... I lived in Kent. um, And she was just trying to find a local tennis club for me to go and join to be able to play again so that's kind of how it started and then I became completely and utterly obsessed with it 
to the point where they then said, well, you're going to have to choose between ballet and your tennis because we can't keep ferrying you around all over the place. And then I had a brother and a sister as well. So for parents, it's quite difficult to manage everybody's diary. So that's kind of how it all started, really. Were you also really good at ballet or was ballet more of a hobby? Well, I, well to be honest, I loved my ballet. And if, in many ways, before I discovered tennis, I wanted to be a ballerina. And I used to spend most of my time in my bedroom putting Tchaikovsky music on and dancing around my bedroom and thinking that I was going to be on stage at the Royal Opera House being a ballerina. So, um, you know, and I, I did end up being chosen to do demonstrations at the Royal Academy. And, um, you know, I was taking exams in ballet and I was probably in many ways that ballet background helped me with my coordination for tennis. So I think there is kind of a little bit of a link there. Sure. I think there's such a link between ballet and sport. And I remember... It's a bit of a vague memory now, but we, I played a lot of football at school and mm. our coach was so big on ballet. And I think he showed us that, Man, I could be making this up, but all of Man United, especially Ryan Giggs, played a lot, did a lot of ballet for all his flexibility and strength and conditioning. Wow, how interesting. Yeah, well, I think if you look at ballerinas on stage and you know, both male and female, um, they are so physically strong. It is quite phenomenal in terms of their athletic ability. And if you watch Novak Djokovic now stretching, you know, for a, a match that's coming up, his trainers will lift his leg up and he looks like a ballerina. And, um, you know, when you watch Federer, he, he's very balletic the way that he plays. And now I'm obsessed about yoga. I've been doing yoga for about, I don't know, 10, 11 years or something. And there's such a similarity with yoga and ballet. It's... Uh, it's very, very closely aligned. It's just that ballet, you're turned out and yoga, you're more aligned with your legs and feet and everything straight. But if you think about all the athletes that do yoga to help their, their athletics, whatever sport they've chosen, you know, yoga has become very huge in that. So I'm kind of going back to my roots by just doing it through yoga, actually. It's a personal goal of mine to get into, but, you know, one day at a time. Um, so nine years old, you pick up a racket. At what age did you realise you've got a talent here? Um, well, I started uh, practising a lot and I didn't, I played a couple of tournaments locally and I lost really easily again. I lost love and love in my first tournament back here in Great Britain. And again, my mum thought that would be it, that that would just put me off. And actually, I still remember losing love and love to a much older girl. But um, for some reason, it didn't put me off and I wanted to get better. So I took responsibility for all my training in those days so I used to call up local kids that I'd met at the club and just say oh you know do you want to get together and play which of course today doesn't really happen because everything is organized by parents and then it's all very sort of um you know squad based activity whereas you know in those days I was just calling up kids and saying oh you know do you want to get together and go to the park or do you want to go you know get together and go to the local tennis club and play and then at um 12 I entered the nationals and I was kind of an unknown and I won the nationals under 12 and literally within a couple of weeks I had this letter through from the Lawn Tennis Association inviting me to take part in national training which was then held at a place called Bisham Abbey I don't know if you've heard of it but it's kind of a it's a well-known um, sports facility down in Buckinghamshire and from that moment of receiving that letter my life changed dramatically and that was when everything kind of almost was taken out of my hands it was like well you're now involved in a national training center I was going there for weeks at a time or every weekend and then I was also traveling internationally to represent my country so I went uh well we played 
Israel and we played France and Germany and Sweden and Holland and my youth became one of just traveling and um, representing my country or just training and so life took a very very different turn and I almost feel like it just accelerated and I haven't really looked back haven't had time to stop and think yeah 100% I think what's really interesting is one of the themes that we've been we've identified or I've identified through this process is the need to be proactive in your life Yes. And to make those, like in whatever it is you're doing, it's making decisions to further your goals, further, you know, improve yourself. And obviously you showed that at the age of nine, um, which yes. is quite remarkable. And I like the fact it wasn't so centrally won and it was more of your own back. And it sounds like when you were 12 or once you won the championships, that changed. How did um, you? Yeah, I mean, I it, it did in that the letters were coming through the door and then I'm, you know, you're getting opportunities in life and it's like, you're never going to turn these down, are you? And I've always been someone that whatever opportunities have come along, I always say walk through the door and have a look because, you know, you can easily walk through the door and fail, but it's not such a bad thing. I mean, it's good to fail and it's good to understand what you don't want to do or what you don't like to be able to get you to the place where you do want to do something or you find what, what's good for you. But it's it's really good to walk through those doors that, that um, open up opportunities. But equally, I always was someone that believed that no one was out there to help me. I didn't ever believe someone would wake up in the morning and say, oh, I must help Annabelle Croft today because no one is ever going to do that. Yeah. They're never going to wake up and say that. So the only way that you can help yourself is to do it yourself and to make things happen and make opportunities happen. And sure. I, 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 I did I, used to make a lot of lists for myself. So I used to, I was a kid that kind of kept records of like training drills or, you know, matches against different players. From I've, I've still got my diaries here, actually. Um, when I was about 11 or 12 and I would make diaries of people I played. So I was quite professional at quite an early age yeah. and I yeah I definitely think that by making lists and making opportunities happen it's the only way it's going to happen because it's uh, not going to happen for you. I, I agree with you and I think you know you mentioned earlier about you know mobile phones computers I think another thing that we've seen is the rise of social media and the change in that and the, the reliance on how much we're involved in our phones and I think part of it again is you did this stuff no one had to help because you didn't you maybe weren't aware of the social media the world the way the world was connected so much and it was because you didn't have you know we're, we're marketed at social media and iphones and phones are there to help us and improve our life and maybe don't do a list that you write down and you actively proactive do but now it's so easy to create a list and because yes. you open your phone and you're going on notes and you created the list and i think the act of proactively going to a drawer getting paper writing it down thinking to do it rather than just taking out your pocket flicking your phone up writing is very pivotal in making people do certain things and I think you know identifying the things that were that our, that our podcast guests have had that are different to the generation that we're speaking to now being mindful of the role technology plays in your life is fundamental in my opinion and it sounds very much like that was the same for you yeah. um so as you progressed throughout your teens and obviously success came when you were 18 and won Wimbledon girls and, and Australian Open do you did you did you feel yourself changing your love for tennis was it, was, it, uh, yes. was it obvious from the moment you were Yeah, started? so I loved the travel and I used to, you know, to be that age and just to be experiencing, you know, the world at such a young age was amazing. And I, I loved it and I loved all the different cultures that I was living in. So when I went to Japan, I had Japanese sponsors and, you know, to be taken off to, well, in those days, no one had ever heard of karaoke bars. And so, you know, I'd, never, I'd come from Britain and we never had karaoke. So I was being swept off to all these amazing places in Japan and 
experiencing the culture over there and then of course America you know America was so different to England and I'd never experienced that before and then there I was basing myself in America I was then based over there from the age of 15 I took a decision to go and um, work with a coach over there which was a really fundamental decision to take to leave Britain and kind of almost leave education behind and go and seek you know to become a better tennis player um, but I loved the travel. I loved all the cultures. I loved all the people I was meeting. But my love of competitive you know, sport to make me happy was waning. So if if happiness depended on winning a tennis match, it was starting to become quite a sort of a difficult place to be, if that makes sense. Um, but nowadays, you know, there are so many sports psychologists out there that perhaps I would have sought a different attitude towards what I was doing, um, which I realise now as a much older, hopefully much wiser person, I would would look at it as if, how do I make myself just a better tennis player on the court today and not worry about the results, which is what I know a lot of them, you know, they're taught these processes to go through to actually just walk on court and try to be better at what you do for that period of time. Whereas in my day, it was all about winning and losing. And you're going to lose a lot when you're a junior going onto the senior circuit. And that's that was quite hard because I'd always won a lot as a junior. And then suddenly I'm on the pro circuit as a 15 year old and I'm starting to lose a lot. And I didn't quite know or I didn't have the tools to understand what I was going through. Well, coming back, I want to come back to tools because I think everyone, no one has the tools to deal with anything. And I think no. that's a, a wider problem that we that society needs to solve but going back to 15 years old going to america do you was that your decision did you make that yes. decision by yourself yeah it was my decision i mean i had an opportunity through dunlop rackets who i was then using their rackets and somebody from dunlop knew owen davidson who was an australian coach who'd won the grand slam uh, of mixed doubles with Billie Jean King and he'd also got to the semi-finals of Wimbledon so he was a very very experienced player and Australian who uh, had a real he was a real mentor actually and I think it was a very good decision to go over there and work with him because I got a level of coaching and knowledge that I felt that I would never have got if I'd stayed in Britain um, but I definitely was very hungry to leave Britain and go and seek that it was just exciting you know to the thought of going to live in America and to be training all day and also in the heat you know because you can imagine if you're playing tournaments in Florida where it's 80 90 percent humidity and boiling hot and you've come from Britain where it's chilly and you know in winter it's freezing cold you'd last five minutes on a tournament so to be training in those kind of hot heavy conditions where you're feeling sick every time you walk on the court to train it gets you fit pretty quickly. So I think it was it was a good decision and very much driven by me wanting to do that. Did your parents ever push you? Um, no, they were very keen and very um, willing and very helpful. Um, but I would say my mum was much more pushy than my dad. My dad was a businessman and travelled a lot himself. He was just very calm and very... Yeah, just interested in in the whole thing, but didn't ask too many questions. I'd say my mum was much more interested and in to ask lots more questions about what was going on. But um, I wanted to be very independent. So I was a very independent child. I was traveling around America at, like I said, 15, 16 and playing on the tour. And I was uh, taking Greyhound buses across America to, you know, I was responsible for my travel. So I would, in those days, you didn't have a computer. So you have to sit on the phone and make a phone call to get to the next tournament. So it was spent hours trying to work out which flights, what was the cheapest, 
they had red eyes which would go through the night so we used to try and get a red eye which would be cheaper than a normal flight or I'd sit at a Greyhound bus stadium a uh, station trying to get from A to B and you might go on a bus through the night and I'd be there with quite a few drug addicts and you know, drunken people and I remember thinking I'm not sure what my parents would think if they saw me right now waiting in this dark gloomy bus stop with a whole load of um yeah. you know sort of people that perhaps you shouldn't be hanging around with at 16 but I did it it's a pretty it's a pretty remarkable story and pretty extraordinary to, to hear I don't think I mean thinking today you know in what is a probably a much safer world and you know a world where there's a lot more trust and communication. I don't yeah. think many people would be allowed to do that, which is, or I certainly no. wouldn't be allowed to do no, that. No, I don't. I think you're right. I mean, I often do think about that and think, wow, I can't believe I was doing that at 16. But, um, and would I let my own daughter do that now? You probably, I'd be too mollycoddling of, of them. But, but I was so independent and I just wanted to do it. But you're right. I think nowadays you probably wouldn't, it just wouldn't feel right that you did that. And I suppose the thing that's, the, the weird thought that's going through my head is, as a 15-year-old, 16-year-old girl that's experiencing things that are pretty, that most people wouldn't experience in their entire life, is that having an impact on your life at home? Like, what's happening with your friends? What's happening? I mean, can you even have friends if you live in, if you're you're an elite athlete from the age of 10, 11, 12 years old? Do you manage friends? I've, oh, well, friends are the biggest thing in my life. So um, I've kept one friend who um, I've known since we were seven. And, you know, I used to write to her because of course you I mean I've got a whole box of um letters upstairs which my kids found the other day in the attic and of course the young kids don't write whereas in those days that was the only way to communicate so I have a whole box of these old letters you know writing backs and forwards to my friends back in Britain but but you're right friendships was a big reason why I probably ended up stopping playing tennis because when you're on that tour you don't really have any friends because everybody you're playing against is your enemy. You want to beat them and you're, they're your enemy. You don't want to give away your frailties or what's going on in your head. So I found that quite a lonely place to be with no friends. And um, I just remember thinking, is this it until I'm 30? Is this what I'm going to be doing? And I then came to a decision that it probably wasn't. But hmm. I think I think loneliness is the one thing that's people people don't appreciate I obviously haven't haven't have an interesting life and I'm you know at 24 years old managing lots of people responsible for lots of people it's nowhere the same as what you were achieving but well, it's still very, very it's, interesting <laughs> it's, it's also very lonely and I feel like I never knew going into this the loneliness aspect of it and I think loneliness does play a big part because especially because there's nobody as we've said it's extraordinary no one can appreciate what you went like no one can appreciate your life at that stage and so if you don't have anyone to appreciate it and talk to then like where does it go next yeah. Um, and that's just on the tools comment that you made you know you said that going from like the junior tour to the senior tour and not having the tools to deal with it I find it very impressive that you managed to have the tools to deal with what you were doing at 16 years old going across America oh. um, <laughs> well thank you so you get to you get to senior tour and did that hit you really hard you went um, well, you 24 and 24 24, 24 in the world and I won uh one, one 20, title yeah years old um, I think I was 18, actually, when I won um, my first title. But um, yeah, I think I was 18 when I was 24 in the world. But I I realise now that was so young, but I felt very old. I felt like I'd been travelling nonstop since I was 12, I guess. And then at 15, I was traipsing. You know, you literally don't come back to Britain. I would come back to Britain for the grass court season. And that would be it, really. So I didn't spend much time at home. It was just my whole life was just in a suitcase and traveling to all these different parts of the world. And you go on these sort of like five, six week stints and then on to the next venue. 
Um, so I felt quite old at even 18, 19, believe it or not. And I realized that it wasn't old, but in my head, I was much older than it felt. And plus I'd lived the life of somebody who'd already probably done uni or something. Do you know what I mean? So it's difficult to compare it, but um, I just wish that I had, I needed to leave the sport to then grow up and mature in a different way to then appreciate what I was doing then. But you can never do that if you're in it. Yeah, it's that whole thing about learning through and being mature, isn't it? And sure. learning through your mistakes. So making that decision to leave tennis um, when you're in theory on top of the world, um, can we speak a little bit about that? What was your yeah. process? Because I think decision, we're not taught at school how to make decisions, which is yeah. scary and remarkable. And I find myself in a position to make decisions all day long. And the mental yeah. models that I use, the way that I try and think, the mentorship, what was your process or was it even not a process? Was it just like... Um, yeah, there was a process, actually. I um, When I was about 18, so I didn't stop till I was 21. When I was 18, I was traveling um, with a, a, a girl who was much older than me. who was kind of helping, like being a hitting partner and a chaperone, really, to, to, to a few tournaments. And she suggested I went and saw somebody in Harley Street who was a psycho psychologist. Uh, I always get muddled. Psychiatrist. Yeah. yeah. Very eminent one, actually. But in those days, you know, you didn't have sports psychologists. So he was actually, believe it or not, a marriage guidance counsellor, which sounds utterly ridiculous for a young sports person to be seeing somebody who's a marriage guidance counsellor. But he was doing his best. And I went to him to try to understand tennis and how I could find more enjoyment in my tennis. And um, I had hypnotherapy and I had a lot of sessions with him. But what he taught me was that... Um, I had all these sessions and I was paying for them myself. And after a period of time, I'd like to say like about a year. And of course I was traveling. So it's like on and off. I can't remember exactly how many sessions I had, but I remember at the end of a period of time thinking, I am paying somebody to try to tell me the answers for happiness when I know the answers myself. And I can't keep paying somebody to seek answers when actually the answers are deep within me. And so I need to take responsibility for this myself. And I was reading all these self-help books and I was reading all these psychoanalysis books and positive thinking, this, that and the other. And at the end of the day, I thought my instinct was telling me the truth. And I think that less and less of us trust our instinct when actually instinct is unbelievably powerful. And, you know, we know it about instinct because we all know that when you walk into a room and there's an atmosphere in the room, you don't know why there's an atmosphere, but there might be an atmosphere between several people in the room. But that is instinct. And that is a very powerful animalistic energy. And you can't even put your finger on what that is, but it exists. Because everyone knows what a weird atmosphere feels like when you walk into a room. And either the atmosphere is happy or it's like something going on in this room, but we don't know what it is. And I think if you trust your instinct more, I reckon that when I came to those decisions, it was to try. It, I I ultimately was trusting my instinct that I knew I was on the wrong pathway and I needed to turn left instead of right. But it took a long time for me to get to that point. But I did in the end think, no, I'm going to trust my instinct. Wow, <coughs> unbelievable to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> do you think most people? Do you think there are people today that play on the tour that aren't happy? Yes, I think there's a quite a few people that play that aren't happy. And I think it's probably because they don't know what else to do. So they have got involved in it and they're making money from it. Um, but they it didn't become what they, it 
when they first set out that it would be and they didn't know what it would be but when they start to sort of get involved in the lifestyle they suddenly realize because actually to be a professional tennis player it's not just about the talent or about how good an athlete you are it's about whether you can cope with the lifestyle which means being in a suitcase and not being at home very often not having very many friends but also having that mental stability to be able to cope with setbacks and knockbacks every single week because you're not everyone's going to win every single tournament that they play so it's quite hard and um you know there's so much that goes into being a top world-class tennis player like a jock not everyone can win Wimbledon and these grand slams so it's about adjusting your head into am I happy to be part of this tour and to just try to be the best player that I can be and not worry about the results fascinating um for me did you go did, did you play tennis after that or was it just um I didn't pick up a racket for about two years and I needed to to go and just have peace you know away from from getting up in the morning and putting a tracksuit and trainers on and just like live a normal life and then believe it or not I went straight into entertainment tv which I was very lucky and I also went into theatre so I did five years worth of professional pantomimes all around the country and I was in yeah five whole years of a professional pantomime and then I did a murder mystery musical play that toured around England and Scotland and I actually kind of spread my wings a bit and you know I was probably absolutely dreadful <laughs> I have no idea but I explored and I experimented and I just spread my wings and I really enjoyed it you know I just look back at that period of time where I just oh I had the most fun I've ever had because I had felt like quite restricted on the tennis tour and now I was around people and I was on stage. And even though I was quite a shy person, forcing myself on stage to speak out to audiences of 2000 people sometimes. I mean, I was at the Bristol Hippodrome with Bar- Michael Barrymore and we did shows twice a week, you know, twice a day, afternoon, matinee and evening, and then three times on a Saturday. But it was forcing me to be able to stand in front of people and get used to hearing my voice and, um, you know, just probably get the words wrong a few times, fail, but have a lot of fun along the way. And I learned to kind of accept who I was. And, there are and lots of parallels between that and the tennis career. Um, absolutely, yeah, there are. There's a lot of parallels. Yeah, a lot. Uh, but I suddenly felt like I wasn't being judged for missing a backhand or a forehand, if that makes sense. So on tennis, I was worrying about what people would think of certain shots or if I'd done a double fault listening to people tutting and you know judging. You weren't worried about people if you missed reliance or you said a joke. Um, Well, I probably might have been, but I think I learned to just be a little more um, less judgmental of myself. And I think that's the one lesson that I've learned through all of my life, which I wish I had been less judgmental of myself as a tennis player, because I judged myself very harshly and I... I was very, very critical. I'm a perfectionist. So when I do something, I want to do it really well. And I realized that I was too harsh on myself. And then suddenly you're becoming unhappy because you're not living up to your own expectations. And actually, sometimes you just need to take a chill pill and just think you are doing your best. You are putting yourself out there. But, you know, it's okay to fail and it's okay to lose and it's okay to make the wrong decision and maybe take the wrong job and then you can change it and take the right decision do you know what I mean you can it, it's okay to fail 
also it's okay to celebrate weakness it's okay to recognize you're a human being it is yeah and it's it's not such a bad thing and actually to fail at a few things makes you a far more interesting person (laughs) i think there's i was listening so i'm obsessed with um with bill ackman who is one of the world's best hedge fund managers and he famously speaks about the fact that he doesn't think there's almost anybody in the world that has achieved great success without having failed fast. Yes. I think what I I was going to mention earlier was the mobile phone thing, again, it prevents you from being comfortable to fail. You know, you would buy people judging your backhands. That wasn't in a world where a video on TikTok could go viral and be seen by 500 million people before you could even think. That's true. And like, I remember Sam and I, when we started or decided to start, we didn't help anybody for like, I reckon a good six to 12 months. Yeah. It's like, you do that because the whole world talks all of the time because the whole world has a platform to do so. Yes, that's and right. That's, Sometimes that's, I want to tell it to shut up. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get to that at some point. But, um, <laughs> I think the judging point is brilliant because I think so many, if I think back to our students, you know, so many students put enormous pressure on themselves to get mm-hmm. that graduate job or to yeah. uh, apply for that internship. And mm-hmm. they can't realise that there's a 30, 40 year journey ahead of you. And if you're six yes. months delayed, 12 months delayed, even five years delayed, yeah it doesn't matter it really doesn't matter no gosh if I knew now or then what I know now it would be so different I could have had a completely different attitude but you know if I think about all those weird sort of acting things I did you know back then and it's like well I'm not an actress and I know I did five years worth of like traipsing around doing all sorts of weird and going for different weird jobs and just putting myself out there but you know I've never ended up there but I've ended up somewhere where part of that helped where I am now you know when I think of doing tv and hosting and being in front of audiences live in the O2 arena and hosting big gigs and you know it's like wow all of that stuff I did in theatre helped me for that and but when I was a when I was a young, well, I'd say a young teenager, I almost hyperventilated before I had to do speeches. I mean, I really couldn't cope with doing anything like that. I was, I remember my husband actually almost picking me up off a car park floor for a TV gig where I was hyperventilating because I couldn't cope with being out there. And, and it's how weird that now that's so much a big part of what I do and I love it and I enjoy it, but I almost needed to go through all these difficult times to get to where I'm at now. Well, I think having watched you on TV pretty much all of my all of my <laughs> at least I've got one person watching <laughs> my friend George down there is also on the same so we're oh, just off together but <laughs> you never realize that and you would never know that and I think that's a great note to end this on because our students who haven't heard you know haven't watched you they should yeah. come to on what you present and to see that early in your career you were hyperventilated the thought of presenting and then you know you've come yeah. on the podcast and be as articulate okay. as it's weird isn't it it is it's weird for me too but but that's you know that's the journey um, I've loved this conversation. I really have. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Well, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. <laughs>